Now, I may have been born in the 70s, but all of my formative years were in the 80s. So it's why I devoured Netflix's series Stranger Things, if you happen to see that. That was my childhood, complete with all the Dungeons and Dragons late at night. It was why I nostalgically read Ernest Cline's Ready Player One, if you're familiar with that novel. I grew up on on Atari, on ColecoVision, and some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about, particularly people probably over here. Atari, ColecoVision. I grew up on Bill Cosby and, and Kirk Cameron. It's why I feel far more at home, in case you haven't noticed, quoting Michael Jackson or Madonna as opposed to Ariana Grande, or as some of you who are younger have corrected me, no, it's Ariana Grande. Or Keisha. See all the laughter over here. Keisha, no, no, they've, they've told me it's, it's, it's Kesha. Kesha. I don't listen to these people. I just read about them. And what's with the complicated names? Like Kesha with a, with a dollar sign. Is it Daya? David Guetta? I, I don't know how to pronounce these names. I don't know what happened to like you 2 or Sting. Simple names. At any rate, getting back to the 80s. So in, it's in 1988. I remember when George Michael came out, formerly of Wham!, Right? He released his first solo, solo album, and he wanted in this album to be treated more seriously as an artist, which was quite a lot to ask when your former hit singles were Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. But the album self-titled, self-titled single, Faith, that single went on to be Billboard 100's top song of 1988. And so when asked about the song... George Michael said, it represents the way I feel at the moment. You know, faith. To me, it's it's just really such a strong word. It's kind of another word for my hope, my great optimism. You know, as Americans, we tend to be optimistic by nature. I think he was tapping into some of that optimism. And yet, as we look around in recent years, I think a lot of that optimism is fading. It's receding. Our faith in democracy, faith in the news media, Faith in markets, faith in our children's future, faith even in one another. According to statistics, it's all on a downward trend. Even faith in religion is suffering. You know, more and more would agree with Richard Dawkins' statement that religion is really for those who suffer from a, a, quote, mental illness. Yet faith in science even seems to be wavering as scientific journals like the Journal of the American Medical Association or even science has increasingly had to retract studies on climate change, on gay marriage, on AIDS vaccinations, all due to doctored research. It seems our optimism, our faith, you might say, is is giving way. Faith institutions or faith in individuals, it's giving way really to more of a cynicism. So I wonder, how do you then think about faith today? I use that word faith. Sing George Michael. What do you think about faith? Is there any difference between how the world talks about faith and when we gather together into church, how we talk about faith? At the end of the day, is anything or is anyone finally worthy of your faith? Worthy of your faith? To help us think through these questions, I want us again this morning to turn back in our Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 5. The book of Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 21 through 43, and if you want to use one of the seatback Bibles provided in the seatbacks before you, you can find it on page 800 and... 
840, I think it is, page 840. So if you don't own a Bible, feel no embarrassment by that. We provide them for you in the seat backs there. Page 840, you should be able to find it there. And if you're just joining with us, Mark's gospel, it's a gospel all about the person of Jesus Christ. For a lot of people have held varyingly different opinions about this relatively obscure man from this backwater town of Nazareth on the eastern fringes of the Roman Empire. And though he he held no formal religious training, he commanded no army, he didn't hold any political office, he didn't lead some multinational corporation, he, he didn't do any of these things or be able to boast of any of these things, and yet everybody's talking about Jesus. Now at first... They all assume he's just a teacher, albeit he's an incredibly compelling teacher, but he's just a teacher. And yet as his ministry progresses, and as we've watched it, as we've worked through the book, we've come to find that perhaps he's a little more than a teacher, because accompanying his teaching are some pretty out-of-the-ordinary things, all backing up some pretty out-of-the-ordinary claims he's making about himself. And yet we find that not all respond to Jesus in the same way. Right, so the religious authorities see him as a threat to their religious way of life. The political authorities like Herod see Jesus as a threat to his political way of life. Even last week, we saw how the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, how they found Jesus a threat to their economic way of life. And despite delivering the demoniac, Right, that community ran him out of town, back into those boats and back across the sea. And so this morning we come to find him back on the western side, the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And yet all along the disciples, they've witnessed Jesus calm the stormy sea. They've witnessed Jesus deliver the demoniac's own stormy soul. So if you're a disciple, you're thinking, what, what can Jesus not do? Right, what can he not do? And so we pick up our story, chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Thronged, that's just another way of saying crushed, in case you're unclear. Crushed, they're pressing in on him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing about you, and and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, 
came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. All right, so once again, we are in this section confronted with another truly remarkable story, a remarkable story about, again, in this case, two truly wretched creatures, creatures in great struggle and pain and agony, right? It was as we've seen all along. So look back a few weeks, two weeks ago, right? The disciples caught there in the deluge in that watery abyss. They had their own trouble. Last week, it was the tortured soul of the demoniac, Right, it's his bloodied, naked body. Right, he's wailing, and, and he's crying out with those jagged stones as he cuts himself. Another pitiable character. And this week, it's a, it's a hopeless woman, and we have a heartbroken father, tormented by the, by the cruel vicissitudes of, of death and disease. And part of, I think, what connects these four stories of the, of the deluge and of the, the demoniac and of disease and death, of these, if you look back with me, is this notion of fear, this notion of fear. So if you look back at 441, when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples were what? They were filled with great fear. They witnessed that power, and it filled them with fear. Jump forward to the next scene with the demoniac, chapter 5, verse 15 You get the community around this demoniac, and they've witnessed a change in him because he's there sitting in his right mind, and and he's clothed, and what do they say? They say that they were afraid. That's what we read. Or in our text, we have the diseased woman in chapter 5, verse 32, upon being called out by Jesus for what she's done, what do we read? Well, she comes to him in fear and trembling, chapter 5, verse 32. Or Jairus, right? What is he told in chapter 5, verse 36? He's told not to fear, but only to believe. So notice what's happening in this section. The disciples were rebuked for their lack of faith. Remember that word even Jesus uses is cowardly. They're rebuked for their lack of faith. The garrison community that had witnessed the healed demoniac, well, they rebuked Jesus, right? They had no faith. They sent him away. You've got these two negative examples that then lead into this morning two positive examples. The woman of whom Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 34, 
your faith has made you well. And those words to Jairus, 536, do not fear, only believe, have faith. And what happens is his daughter is healed. In other words, I think this passage is really pressing home for us the nature of true faith. What is the nature of of biblical faith? Of biblical faith that replaces life's paralyzing fears? What's the nature of, of faith that produces genuine healing? Well, I think this passage has three things to teach us about the nature of this faith. And the first is this. Faith is universal. It's the first lesson I think the passage teaches us. Faith is, it's universal. And what I mean by this is at the end of the day, all of us in this room will all lean upon something. When life becomes wobbly, right, when the storms rage and when the ground shifts beneath our feet, we look to lay hold of something, to grasp onto something, anything to steady us, anything to ground us, to help us make sense of our own broken lives. And that's because we all have needs. Every one of us here this morning, we have needs. So take Jairus in our text this morning. He's the synagogue ruler, according to verse 22. So he would have been a man of standing, the man who would have presided over the financial and physical well-being of the synagogue, the one who supervised its public worship and the teaching and the reading of scriptures and prayer. So a man like Jairus would have been deeply respected in his own community. He's the kind of guy when walking down the sidewalk, if you were happened to be walking the other direction, you'd step aside, tip your hat, pay him respect, the honor due him. He's that kind of a figure in the community. Maybe a little bit like we might treat a mayor if we were to see the mayor. And he's the synagogue ruler. And we should be thinking, now wait, what do we know about the synagogue? Well, the last time Jesus was in the synagogue was back in chapter 3. And if you remember, when he healed the man with the withered hand, what happened at the end of that scene? Well, all the religious leaders get together and they conspire how they're going to kill Jesus. So when Jesus steps out of that boat and the synagogue ruler, kind of eerily similar to the way the crazed demoniac came right at Jesus as soon as he got out of the boat, now you've got the synagogue ruler barreling toward Jesus as soon as again he steps out of the boat Well, we're not going to expect this to go very well for Jesus. I mean, is he coming to arrest Jesus? Is he coming to strike him? Is he going to do something worse to Jesus? So we're entirely unprepared for what happens next. For this respected figure, what does he do? He's reduced to his knees. He's brought to his knees. He's begging and imploring Jesus in verse 23. He's on his Knees, he's pleading, maybe through sobs of tears. Maybe his, his hands are gripped around Jesus' ankles or his feet. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but no doubt those large crowds would have been shocked. This is the synagogue ruler bowing before this man. I mean, why would a grown man who leads the religious establishment be groveling before an untrained rabbi who's already sideways with that same establishment? What would cause the response of this synagogue ruler? We read in verse 23, we know why. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. And at this moment, who can't feel for this man, for his little girl? 
right? He's been by her side perhaps for weeks as she's been slowly slipping away. You know, there she lays and she looks into his eyes, perhaps grasping for any, any help her own father can offer her. I mean, that's, that's a dad's job. That's what he does, try to help his own children, care for them. He's the kind of dad, no doubt, like all of us would move our, the world for our own kids. And yet, he's watching his daughter as the onslaught of death rolls over her. He's overwhelmed. He's hopeless. He's hollow. He's, he's gutted. And then his mind at some point drifts toward that teacher. Maybe he was there in the synagogue when Jesus healed that man with the, with the withered hand. And his heart's torn because he knows Jesus is the enemy of the synagogue and those rulers. He knows Jesus should be his enemy. And yet, who else can help me? Who but Jesus could possibly help my little girl? All right, so what's Jarius got to lose? Jarius is how I read his name for a long time. Every now and then, I still pronounce it Jarius. I think it's Jairus. So if I confuse you with that, my apologies. But what's Jairus got to lose? All right, he sets out for Jesus. He pursues him. He throws himself at his feet. And at this moment, bowing before Jesus, it really makes no difference It makes no difference to him that the crowds were great. It makes no difference that probably among those crowds were other religious leaders from the synagogue. Will there be repercussions for this? Sure they will. You know, maybe maybe repercussions back in Washington. Maybe James Comey's going to lead the investigation. I mean, whatever it is, there's going to be some fallout for this action of this man. He might lose his job, but it's his daughter. Right, our heart aches for this guy. And the same way it does for the woman. Right, we read in verse 25 that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. A hemorrhage, you know, likely from her uterus, maybe some form of endometriosis. The text doesn't get more specific. Either way, it would have been a painful thing for her. It would have been terribly inconvenient. You know, there weren't the modern sanitary and and sort of disposable solutions available to help her with the problem. She would have constantly been having to wash. Even more, this would have meant she would have been unable to conceive. And in a world where the worth of a woman was tied to her womb, right, the inability to conceive, that would have been crushing. That's not all. She'd suffered much under many physicians. We read in verse 26, you know, who, many, who knows how many failed procedures this woman had to undergo? How many doctor's appointments? How many times she got, her, she got her hopes up only to have them dashed again? She had been to the Mayo Clinic. She had tried all the homeopathic recipes. She tried everything on those infomercials, right? None of it worked for her. And, but it's still worse because we read that she spent everything she had Whatever savings, whatever she had earned, anything she had inherited, who who knows what kind of heirlooms she had had to hawk at the local pawn shop just to pay for that last treatment. And yet, after it all, we read that she was no better, but rather grew worse. Oh, that's horrible. But that's not the end of it, because the medical and financial burden Well, yeah, that's bad, but according to Jewish law, what was she? Oh, she's unclean. She's unclean. Her bleeding made her unclean, and the fact that it did not stop made her therefore perpetually unclean. You know, according to Leviticus 15 and 17, life is in the blood. And so loss of blood reflects loss of life. 
So to deem one unclean, that was not meant to be a punishment. It was God's own way of helping to teach his people the sanctity of life, the blessing of life. But for her, because of her disease, it made her perpetually unclean, which meant she was perpetually cast out and separate, cut off from the community, much like the leper we thought about many weeks ago. Right, so when her family or, or whatever was left that was gathering together for a meal around the table, right, she would have been on the outside looking in. Perhaps someone would have brought her a plate. But I mean, that, she's just no different from a dog. Fed outside, away from the people, away from the community. So we're left here with a woman who's barren, who's broke financially. She's got a, a broken body. And she, too, is in desperate need. You got a character of great prominence and the other seemingly of little consequence, and yet what unites them both is their need. And friends, I don't want you to miss this. I think when, as Mark sets this up, as we have this story, as Jesus works within the lives of these two individuals, we have for us a picture of the plight of every one of us, of each of us. You know, we, we like to think that these two are the anomaly, but if you've lived life long enough, you know they're the reality. All of us, to one degree or another, can identify with these characters. And we like to think we're self-sufficient. We like to embrace the notion of the, of the self-made man, the one who's dependent on no one, needs nothing. But these two crippled souls remind us that any notion of self-sufficiency is but a thin veil, and what lies behind that is a chasm of desperation and despair. And all it takes, friends, all it takes is one Gulf storm, one homemade bomb on a London tube, one dreaded phone call from a doctor's visit, one day when you're girlfriend or your boyfriend or perhaps much worse your spouse utters those dreaded words that you thought you would never hear and your own sense of self-sufficiency will collapse into this chasm of desperation and despair just like these two friends this is life in all of its punishing cruelty and on that day I don't care who you are. We all lean on something. We look to someone. We try to comfort ourselves with anything that we possibly can. We do it. It's a universal instinct. Friend, where do you turn in those moments? Where do you go in those moments? Where do you go for relief? Where do you go for hope? Where do you go for comfort? Faith is universal. It is. It's a collective instinct of us all. But there's a second lesson we need to see, and that's that biblical faith... Biblical faith is personal. That's the second thing I want us to see. Biblical faith is personal. It's personal. Notice both Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman, both of them come to Jesus. They come to Jesus. Right? Jairus likely witnessed that healing power of Jesus, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And the woman, verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus. Right, it's amazing. This guy had gone viral in an age where there was no fiber optic communications, you know, information traveling at the speed of light. There were no cell phones, no landlines, right? There was 
No telegraph, no Pony Express, right? None of that. And yet, word of this guy had spread everywhere. And so she too comes to him. But notice where Jairus approached approached Jesus face to face. Notice she feels like all she can do is approach him from behind. She approaches him from behind. She comes rather, you would say even surreptitiously, verse 27, from behind in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And if you stop and think, that's amazing faith. That the woman who has been failed by so many would believe in that moment that maybe Jesus could help her. That she would do what she's not supposed to do as an unclean woman and gather into a crowd Because, of course, anyone she touches now becomes unclean. But she does it nonetheless because of her faith in this one. And she presses and elbows and makes her way to Jesus. Oh, friend, you may have been yourself failed horribly by others. Maybe it was by parents. Maybe it was by a spouse. Maybe your own community. Maybe your friends. Maybe even a religious community has failed you. But I want you to see exactly what this woman sees. There's something different about Jesus. Deeply different about him. This Jesus never fails his people. He never has failed his people. He never will fail his people. And he won't fail you if you come to him. Because what both characters powerfully witness is that What matters is the object of our faith, right? That's what matters most. It's the object of our faith. So we can sing George Michael all we want. You know, got to have faith, faith, faith. He says faith all the time. But it's not faith in faith that matters. It's not faith in humanity's potential. It's not faith in science. It's not faith in nature. It's not faith even in some vague notion of God. What distinguishes biblical Christianity and the kind of faith the scriptures talk about from every other kind of faith is that it's rooted in Jesus. It's in a person. He is the object. So no one is ever saved by the power of positive thinking, like a, a kind of Norman Vincent Peale. You know, believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities without a humble but reasonable confidence, have such a humble and reasonable confidence in your own powers, and then you can be assured of your successful, happy lives. I'm just reading from him, but that kind of stuff, sadly, too often passes for Christianity, but just recognize it has nothing to do with Christianity. Without the right object, faith is meaningless. It's worthless. You know how often, perhaps, if you had a religious, had a conversation, it turns to religion, and you get into a discussion, and they say, oh, I have faith. As if that settles it. I have faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in gummy bears? Faith in green aliens? Faith that U of A is going to field a water polo team? I mean, what kind of faith? Right? Faith without the right object, it's meaningless. It can even be laughable. But with the right object, notice what happens. This faith accomplishes. This faith works. What does Jesus say to the woman in verse 34? Your faith has made you well. He doesn't say your touch has made you well, but your faith has made you well. You know, I think that's a beautiful reminder to us 
Because sometimes when we think about God, we assume that we can only come to God and he'll only accept us when we have everything kind of worked out. And once we've got it worked out and once we're settled and once things are good, then we come and trust God will accept us and he can be pleased with us. But this woman didn't have it all sorted out. You might even say there was an element of superstition in the way she approached Jesus by assuming that she could merely touch his garment and she would be healed. But notice that neither Mark nor Jesus, they don't here confront her on her lack of orthodoxy. Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, why don't you go home and study the Reformation, and once you've understood the five solas of the Reformation, then come back and we can talk about your healing. He doesn't do that. That's not how he responds to her. Listen, you don't have to have it all figured out in order to come to Jesus in faith. Right? Radical faith begins like this woman with very simple faith. It can be weak. It will be imperfect so long as it's in him. So long as it's in him. It can be as tiny as a mustard seed. Right? But he's the one who can develop that into something absolutely beautiful. And notice that's exactly what he does with both of these characters He takes what little faith both of them have and he works to develop it, to correct it even, but to then to undergird and and strengthen and bolster their faith. I mean, do you wonder why Jesus stopped in verse 30 and says, in the midst of the crowd, as they're crushing in upon him, who touched me? Right, who touched my garments? It's a ridiculous question. You can even hear that in the disciples' response. What do you mean who touched you? Look around you. Like, have you, get a grip, Jesus. Everyone's touching you. Now, it's possible Jesus didn't know who it was. You know, one of the perplexing things about the incarnation is that while Jesus has supernatural knowledge, the incarnate Christ doesn't possess infinite knowledge. Right? He has supernatural knowledge. That's not quite the same thing as saying that he possessed infinite knowledge. So he'll know the woman at the well in John 4 has five husbands. He doesn't need to be told that. He knows that. He knows that when the disciples are out fishing all night, he knows where the school of fish is, and he says, throw your net over, and you're going to get a big catch. He knows that. And yet at the same time, he doesn't know the day or the hour of the final judgment. We read in Mark 13, 32. In Luke 2, we read as a boy, he has to learn and grow in in his memory and perception and logic, right? All that has to develop. It's part of the, the humanness of Jesus, Jesus knows what God has revealed to him. And maybe God hadn't revealed exactly who it was that had touched him. But I think perhaps it's more likely that Jesus did know. But he wanted a relationship. She wanted something. Jesus would have someone. He wants her. Not merely to be healed, but to be in right relationship with him. So he stops this mass procession and he asks, who touched me? I think in that moment he's wanting to develop that woman's faith. He wanted her to know that it wasn't finally his garments that had the power to heal, only he had the power to heal. And unless she understood this, unless her faith was unequivocally grounded in him, she might remain diseased spiritually 
even if she was healed physically. Right, and what good would that be? To be healed physically, but, but not finally spiritually. Right, he didn't want her to risk confusing physical touching with simple trusting. But notice he does the same thing that he does with the woman with Jairus. So when Jesus agrees to go to Jairus' home, right, when he says, I'll go with you, how that man's heart must have leapt out of him. Right, make way, we're going, like now, fast, running, or however they would have done it. Right, They're trying to make their way. And yet no sooner have they begun when Jesus is delayed by this hemorrhaging woman. You know, if you're Jerry to this point, you're going mad. Jesus, we don't have time to deal with who touched you in this moment. This isn't the place to settle those conversations, right? She's been struggling for 12 years. My daughter might just have 12 minutes. We've got to get to my house. You know, it might be like an ambulance driver, and he's got a patient coding in the back, and he sees a little fender bender and decides to pull over to help apply a Band-Aid. I mean, Jesus, can't you triage a little bit better here? Don't you know which situation is more pressing? But he's testing, I think, Jairus' faith. For that's how true faith, all true faith is developed. It's how your faith is developed. By testing, by trial. I think Jesus knew this interruption was going to prove disastrous for Jairus' daughter. I believe he knew that very much in the same way in John 11. Jesus knew delaying to go visit Lazarus was going to mean that Lazarus would be dead by the time he arrived. And so when that envoy comes to meet Jairus and Jesus and the father sees the heads of that envoy hung low and when he hears the whisper that his daughter is already dead, I mean, the numb and the shock and the overwhelming grief that man must have felt, and yet Jesus ignores all of that and has the audacity to look Jairus in the eye, and what does he say? He says, do not fear, only believe. I mean, put yourself in that moment. That is a ridiculous thing to say. It's an obnoxious thing to say. Believe, Jesus, my daughter's dead, and if you hadn't delayed, we might have been able to do something about it. I mean, at that moment, telling Jairus not to fear but to believe, you know, if you had someone crippled by an accident, and they're there in the hospital bed, and they're being put for the first time into a wheelchair, and then you called to them and said, I want you to go climb Mount Everest. I mean, what a cruel thing to say to someone. Maybe he was a climber. He can't do that anymore. He's in a wheelchair. Don't ask the guy to go climb Everest. Don't ask what's impossible. It sounds cruel, almost what Jesus said to this man who's now living in his own personal hell. But he's saying, despite, Jesus saying, despite how crazy it seems, Jairus, look me. Despite how crazy it seems, you can trust me. You can trust me. Now, I still feel in some respects how crazy and yet how compelling those words of Jesus are. You know, it was in 1989. I'm not a believer. I'd been given a Bible. I'd encouraged to read through the Gospels. No exposure to Christianity. I didn't know a look about Jesus. I read through him the first time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. I really didn't like Jesus because Jesus didn't have 
He didn't have a lot of nice things to say about me, honestly. But I also know he was likely true. And I'm reading through the Gospels another time. And I come to this very verse back in 1989. Don't be afraid, just believe. And in that moment, God, like a light, just blew the switch on. And he exposed the futility of all my self-sufficiency. And he revealed and helped me to embrace his all-sufficiency. Just as I read those words, do not fear, only believe. I wonder if you've done that. As crazy as that may sound, have you embraced that call of Jesus? Not to fear, but to believe Because faith in ourselves, faith in any of the institutions we hold dear, those things are not finally enough. But faith in this man is enough. And if you are unfamiliar with what it means to be a Christian, if you're unfamiliar with the gospel message, the glorious news is that we know this faith is enough because Jesus lived a perfect life. We read through these gospels. We hear the eyewitness accounts. He always perfectly obeyed his Father. He did what you and I can't do and, frankly, what we often don't really want to do. We don't want to obey Jesus. We don't want to obey God. It can be hard. Our flesh, our desires pull us in a different direction. But when pulled, Jesus never went that direction. He always perfectly obeyed. And then there on the cross, there were going to be another set of laughers at Jesus, another set of those who mocked him for his crazy claims. And yet in that moment, Jesus would die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He would bear the burden and shame and guilt and punishment we deserve. He bore that for us in our place. And when we trust in him, not fearing but believing and turning from our sin, repenting, we get his perfect righteousness. And we can know him. We can be in relationship with him. We can be saved finally and truly. And friend, if you haven't done that, I implore you to do that. And to know that this Jesus is worthy. And then in those moments when it's hard, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, yeah, they're going to say, don't trouble me. But I'm going to keep troubling me. Trouble me all you want. You can't wear me out. Keep trusting in me. Keep your heart anchored in me. Plant your flag in me. I will not fail you. I will not let you down. Right? I am that immovable rock amongst all the shifting sands. You are safe with me. Do not fear but believe. He knows that he has asked the nearly impossible of Jairus to believe that Jesus can still do something about his dead daughter because Jesus knows what he's up to. He knows what he's up to. Jesus knows what Jairus most needs. And Jairus is fighting for faith. He's fighting for faith. But Jesus knows that what he most needs and what you and I most need is not a physician. We need a resurrection. And that brings us to our third and final point about faith. Biblical faith is, it's not just personal, it is, it's powerful. The third thing I want us to see, a third lesson about faith, biblical faith is powerful. It's powerful. Why? Because Christ is powerful. Right? It's the power of Jesus that connects these four scenes. It's his power over the deluge in 435 to 41. His power over demons, his power over disease. Notice that even when the woman, just when she touches Jesus in verse 29, what happens immediately, or we come across that word, immediately the, the blood stopped. 
Just like when Jesus touched the man with leprosy and immediately he was healed. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen a few physicians recently. I'm never immediately healed. You know, maybe I get some prescriptions. Maybe I'm told to take some pills for a while. Maybe they tell me to do some exercises. And maybe it helps. I do just know that I'm never immediately healed. But this is the power of Jesus. It's supernatural power. And now we see it not over the delusion and demons and disease, but it's over death with Jairus' daughter. You know, in the Bible, death is the last great enemy. So it's kind of fitting in these sort of in the scene of power miracles, it's fitting that this one about death concludes, even as we move into chapter six. Because it seems, right, Jesus is too late. That's what it seems. Your daughter is dead, we read in verse 35. Why trouble the teacher any further? Notice again to the masses, that's all Jesus still is. He's just a teacher, but he's come to show he's so much more. So they arrive at the house, and just think of that scene It's chaos and commotion. And the sounds, the sounds of the mourners were there only magnifying the man's grief. You know, funerals were not the quiet, sort of solemn ceremonies we often know. They were loud and noisy. Even even the poorest were expected to hire mourners over a death. And so to have a respectable man like this lose a daughter, no doubt there is a great crowd, a choir, so to speak, of mourners wailing and weeping as, as Jairus and Jesus comes to the home. And at this point, the story takes an even stranger twist because Jesus insists in verse 39 that the child, in fact, isn't dead, only sleeping. And notice the response, right? What do the mourners do? They, they laugh at him. They laugh at him. Hey, Jesus, we're professionals, all right? We do this all the time. We can tell the difference between a dead girl and a sleeping girl. This girl is dead. It's why we're all here. You're a bit late to the party, a little late to the show. You know, they're laughing. I don't know if it reminds you of another couple, of another couple who laughed at God when he made an outrageous claim and gave them an outrageous promise. Remember the laughter of Abraham and Sarah when God promised to give them a son? You'll have a child even in your old age. What do Abraham and Sarah do? They laugh. Yeah, sure, God, right next to our walkers, we're going to put a bassinet. It was laughable to them. In the scriptures, men laugh when they lack faith, when they deny the power of God to do the impossible. And just as Jesus had promised back in Mark 4, 25, To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Notice what happens to the mourners. They're cut off from the miracle. Remember, they're left outside. Jesus goes inside with the parents and the three. And then going into the girl, he takes her by the hand. He calls that dead little girl to rise. And rather unusually, notice Mark records the Aramaic. You know, Talitha Kumi. We've we've noted that Mark is effectively Peter's memoirs. Mark's in Rome, he's with Peter, he's getting these accounts from Peter, and I bet you he records the Aramaic here, because that's exactly how Peter recorded it. So many years later, this scene was still ingrained in his memory, right? He can still hear those words even so many years later, because immediately, she gets up. This dead girl rises. 
Jesus doesn't chant for hours. He doesn't dance in circles about her. He doesn't offer these complicated spells and other concoctions. All he says is arise and she does. I mean, think of the power of his word. Now, I'm not usually a fan of those red-letter Bibles because oftentimes you get them and the maybe subconscious message is that the red letters are more important than the black letters, the non-red letters, right? What Jesus said is perhaps more important than the other stuff the Bible says, maybe that what Paul says or the prophets say. And yet in this case, it actually may help you out a little bit. It's a little confession there because Jesus says precious little throughout these four miracles, He says very little. He says to the storm, remember, he's yelling into a storm like a crazy man. He says, peace be still, and it's still. He says to the demon-possessed men, he yells at the demons, so to speak, come out, and they all come out. He says to the woman, your faith has made you well, and she goes away healed. He says to this little girl, arise, and what happens? She rises. Friends, that's the power of Jesus' word. Not only to produce physical healing in these two, but to produce spiritual healing as well. All Jairus wanted, what does his daughter be made well? Verse 23. What does the hemorrhaging woman want? Verse 28. To be made well. That word made well in the Greek, sozo, it's the, other, it's the same word actually for salvation. It doesn't refer just to physical healing. It also refers to being saved spiritually from our own sins. Mark, even in that, is helping us see that Jesus didn't come merely to bring physical healing, but to bring spiritual healing. Because one of the things this verse helps us see, and all the Bible testifies to, is that none of us are well spiritually. We're all unwell. We all need to be healed. And that's what these healings are fundamentally here to show us. Not that we simply have physical problems that need tending to, but of course we all do, but that we have much deeper spiritual problems. All right, see, look how both women are even a picture of, of sin's consequences. All right, sin's consequences before a holy God. Notice how both are unclean. Right, unclean, a picture of how sin makes us all unclean before a holy God, right? When confronted before a holy God, what does Isaiah say in Isaiah 6? Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Notice how they're isolated in their own ways, isolated from community. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Right? And like both those women who were entirely unable to heal themselves, the little girl is dead, Ephesians 2.1. We read, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. They're pictures of all of our own spiritual condition. And yet by personal faith and the power of this Jesus, all of that can be gloriously reversed. And death becomes nothing but sleep. I love that expression Jesus has used, Sleep. Not that he really believed the girl was in sleep as we know it, and as perhaps you knew last night, but sleep in the sense that what she experienced was but temporary. It was something that he would wake her from. Before Jesus, even death will flee and be reduced to sleep. So friend, what are you gonna do with Jesus? These miracles, what are you gonna do with him? Is it going to remain in your own life merely a teacher 
like he was to so many who witnessed him. Right? He was an admirable man at the end, but just a man. Or will this man be more than a teacher? Will he be, even this morning, will he be your savior? Your savior. Because one day, everyone in this room is going to answer to this Jesus. I don't know if you noticed something else. There are themes that are rich, thick, and flowing through these chapters. Did you notice as well how even here again, everyone is bowing the knee to Jesus? Jairus fell at his feet, verse 22. The hemorrhaging woman fell down before him, verse 33. Not only them, but remember last week, the demons, what do they do in 5-6? Fell down before him. Even the wind and the waves, nature itself, at the mere command of Jesus, they fall before him and become utterly calm. Everyone is falling before Jesus. Everyone in these, these verses, are they're bowing and they're begging because this Jesus is God. He is God. And friend, friend, one day you too will bow before this same Jesus, either at your death or at Christ's return, whichever comes first, all of us will bow before this Jesus, and he will either be your savior or he will be your judge. It will be one or the other. And at that time, there will be no plea deals. Right? The time for pardons will have passed at that moment. Don't miss that before Jesus Everyone will fall, and only he can make you rise. So where is your faith this morning? Where is your faith this morning? Is it in faith? Is it in something else? Because what's finally important is not even the amount of our faith. It's not the intensity of our faith. We love to talk about intensity as Christians. It's not even the intensity of our faith. What's important is the faithfulness of Jesus. And so long as we genuinely trust in this one, personally, and with such power, like this little girl, one day too we will rise, for he has risen. Friend, will you trust in him? Let's pray.